Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Glorious Disruption is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's Word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by Him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Uh, Good to see all of you worshiping this morning, and I trust that you've already been encouraged. We have been singing about Jesus and his death, resurrection, and ascension, and uh, it's really important as we're coming to the Word and as we're in worship to be reminded where Jesus is right now. Jesus is reigning at the right hand of the Father. He already has all authority on, in heaven and on earth. And as we're coming in to, to study his word and as we're bringing our lives to him, whatever is happening in your heart, whatever's happening in your life, whatever you're struggling with or challenged with, this is good news. Jesus reigns. He's Lord over all. He's got you. And you can rest in him and be assured in him. Uh, I want to share, uh, you know, it's been a tough week with uh, Brad Morton's passing and I want to encourage you to pray for him. I've been in touch with Lori and, um, and also with uh, Jenna and Jeremy, Brad's kids. None of them are here, um, but I'll give you a kind of an update. I th- um, Jenna and Jeremy are planning a family gathering. I haven't got the details yet. It's more like a, a wake or a gathering out near Lake Minnetonka, which will happen soon. And then we as a church family with Lori are going to plan uh, a worship service. We're hoping where the weather is warm. Brad did a lot of service, especially in our outdoor services. So he liked to put up the canopies and uh, barbecue and all of that. So we're going to plan around the 4th of July before or after the 4th of July. Uh, we're going to have a worship service uh, celebrating Brad's life. Um, but I'm going to ask you just to keep them as family in prayer and uh, trust that God would show his face uh, to them and comfort and encourage them. And Flory, if you're watching online, just know that you're loved and prayed for by all of us. Uh, Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, what a comfort it is for us to know who Jesus is. That our lives are not in the hands of the the tyrants of this world. Uh, Our futures are not at the sway of political or economic or social factors, our lives are in the hands of Jesus. We thank you that when we are weakest, when we are struggling, when we're sorrowing, Jesus is a great high priest. Jesus, you know us. You have been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. You are a merciful and faithful high priest, and so we can lay down our sorrows and our uncertainties at your feet. Our lives are safe with you. And we trust you. And Lord Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, minister now into our lives. And so that we would go out from this place announcing to the world around that the, the, the great news is greater than all the news they hear every day. There is a good news, a story of redemption and forgiveness and eternal hope. And so, Heavenly Father, fill us with that hope today. Comfort those who are grieving. We pray for Brad's family We pray, Heavenly Father, that you will minister to them in ways unexpected to them. Show them your face. 
Comfort them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I've entitled the sermon this morning, Humble Leadership. You could call it humble leadership, or you could call it, as it's frequently called, servant leadership. But I really want you to look at the subject of humility in this passage of Scripture. Because one of the things that leadership needs is Christ's humility. Thank God that we have such a Savior as we have in this text of Scripture, the one who would lay down his life, who takes on the role of a servant. But in reality, we live in a world where leadership is not equated with humility. And leadership is not equated with servanthood. The world's view of leadership is radically different. For example, right now in the Sudan, uh, Sudan is divided into Sudan and South Sudan. In, In the northern country of Sudan, there is an awful civil uprising that's taken place. And what's happened is that there are two generals who were once on the same side. Uh, In 2019, these two generals worked together to overthrow the existing government, as is the story in many countries around the world. But now, um, those two generals have turned on each other. One newspaper reporter said, what we are seeing is a mobster shootout. We're seeing two gang bosses shooting it out for control of the terrain in which they make their illicit money. Another reporter said the two generals, General Abdel Fattah Burhan and General Mohamed Dagalo, who is now widely known by the name Hamedti, they're fighting for control. Uh, Hamedti heads up a powerful um, paramilitary group that's also part of the government security forces. In 2019, they overthrew the longtime president and drove him from power. And since then, these two generals have been the most powerful generals in Sudan, and their partnership has become strained. Only one of them can have power. Both of them have self-interest. And when we read from Philippians 2, Jesus says very clearly, do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. The kingdoms of this world, to the detriment of the world, are driven by selfish ambition, and vain conceit. And as we come to this text of Scripture and Jesus is going to the cross, it's stunning to us that he has to talk about this. It's in this text that the disciples start arguing with one another who's the greatest. Now, lest you and I sit here and scratch our heads and wonder how could these disciples be so foolish, you and I need to realize that Every single one of, this battle, one of us battles this. The sin of pride, the satanic sin of pride, affects all of us. That's why it's repeatedly expressed in, Jesus, in, in the Word of God. It's why the Bible says the Lord opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And when pride comes in and out of pride, we take control and enforce our authority and our will on others, the fallout is awful. Hundreds and hundreds of lives have been killed this week in the Sudan. And it happens in our homes. And we just need to be honest. When when two spouses are arguing over who is right, more than 
seeking to serve one another. The fallout for them and for those around them, their families, is very difficult. Uh, for parents and children relationships where pride enters in and self-will and, and uh, personal injury and pride comes in. The wounds of that can last a very, very long time. It happens in the church where suddenly we are wounded or offended because our wills have not been done or something goes awry and we decide that we need to be the savior of the church. The danger in all of that is what we see in this text of Scripture. My friends, it happens where you work, right? In this world, the, the battle over pride and position often makes its way down cruelly to where the average person is just trying to get by. My, Satan from the beginning has been filled with pride and has hoped that we ourselves would be proud because pride destroys, pride divides, Pride um, deceives. Does that remind you of anyone? God opposes the proud because pride deceives, divides, and destroys. It is inherently satanic. It's the opposite of God's very nature revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about leadership in the church, Humility has to be at the center of it. Servanthood has to be at the core. Christ has to be at the center. He is our power, our strength, and our model. And so we define leadership in another way. We define greatness in the kingdom of God totally in a different way. Jesus will explain what greatness looks like. The true test, J.C. Ryle says, of Christian greatness is this. The true tests of greatness are usefulness in the world and the church. A humble readiness to do anything and put our hands to any good work. A cheerful willingness to fill any post, however lowly, and discharge any office, however unpleasant, if we can promote happiness and holiness. That's a good definition. I want to just let you see that and think about that for a moment. The test of true Christian greatness is, is usefulness in the world and the church, a humble readiness to do anything and to put our hands to any good work, a cheerful willingness. The Lord loves a cheerful giver to fill any post, however lowly, and discharge any office, however unpleasant, if we can only promote happiness and holiness. I love that definition. I may ask you, is that, is that defining the way you live? Is that shaping how you're interacting and engaging with others? I'll give you another definition in this text. Humility is a willingness to follow Christ and take the lowliest position in order to do the greatest good for others to the praise of the glory of His grace. It's not about us, it's about Him. It's a willingness to take the lowest position. It is an intentionality by faith in Jesus Christ. And so I, I need to stop and say all of us need to hear this. We need to hear it regularly. We need to hear it daily. I'll, I'll promise you this. You will get to apply this sermon today. Maybe before the sermon's over. <laughs> Certainly before you leave the parking lot. You will get to apply this text to your life because it is the battle of our lives. To humble yourself 
under the Lord and to trust in him and to emulate the gospel. Thank God we have a humble Savior who is willing to go to the lowest place that he might adopt us and save us and raise us to the highest place as children of the living God. And so let's talk about this this morning. And again, let me just stop. For some of you, if you're wrestling with whether or not you think you have the sin of pride, um, I'm just going to say, why don't you and Jesus go off and talk about that right now? Right? Because um, I have the sin of pride. We all have this battle in our lives until we get home to heaven. But praise God, Jesus is on our side in the middle of this battle. So let's start out with the first thing I want you to see is the disciples' shocking attitude. Uh, Luke twenty two twenty four says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, contextually, think about this. Jesus has just given them, in the upper room, the Lord's Supper. He's just instituted the Lord's Supper, and he said to them, this is my body given for you. We're going to take communion soon. And you and I are meant to stop and think about, here's the king of the universe, the one who angels worship, saying to these men, I'm giving my body for you. This is my blood, which is the new covenant, uh, this is the new covenant in my blood. He's giving it to them to remember this. Immediately after that, he tells them, one of you is going to betray me. And you and I stop and go, and then the next discussion is, who's the greatest? But that's what we do. That's what we do. We take communion and we walk out proud. We hear Jesus and we respond in our circumstances of life in this way. And I think, what, what, what's going on here? Uh, why did they do this? Why, why do we get in 24 right after this that these disciples are arguing with one another as to who is the greatest? Let me suggest a couple of things. On the one hand, when Jesus tells them again, as he's been doing repeatedly, I'm about to go to the cross and be crucified on your behalf and on the third day be raised again, they're hearing all their invested sacrifices going down the tank. Jesus is saying, it's, in their minds, it's coming to an end. They can sense palpably disaster is on the horizon. They are seeing Jesus catastrophize the mission. They don't realize that down is the way up. That suffering is the way to wholeness. That death is the pathway to resurrection. They don't get that at all. And so on one hand, they see Jesus pessimistically talking about the future of his ministry, and then Jesus says the words, and one of you is going to betray me. And you can imagine the look around the room going, who? And then the whispers, you know who, right? And in John's uh, passage, as Jesus washes all of their feet, and he speaks to Judas, and he points out Judas, and Judas gets up and leaves. You can just imagine amongst the disciples going, I, I told you. I told you. We can't try. This thing is going down the tank. And one of the things that happens to us when things start to fall apart or appear to fall apart or seem to be going in a way that we can't imagine that God is actually at work, we decide to be God's Savior. 
We start acting and intervening in a way because we know what to do. We know what ought to happen. We've got to solve this, and we put ourselves forward. Is that what should have happened in this text? That the disciples should have said, oh, we know what's going on. See, what pride does is pride arises because we don't hear what's going on and we don't see what's going on. Pride arises when we forget two humbling realities. Jesus really had to die for my sin. And the sin around us is what would happen to us if the grace of God wasn't with us. Yeah. Do you understand what should, have, what should have happened when they heard Jesus say, this is my body given for who? You should have stopped and realized, he has to suffer that for me. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to what? Tremble, tremble, tremble. That's what it should do. Immediately they should have thought and said, this is the new covenant in my body. Why is he going to the cross? Why is he doing there? This institution of the Lord's Supper should not be making you look around the room, but look inside to realize I am weak. And then when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray you, well, there should be an immediate reaction saying, apart from the grace of God, it's likely me. We don't look at Judas and go, how could he? We look at Jesus and say, why didn't I? But by the grace of God. I'm going to read an extended quote from Paul David Tripp on this in leadership and leaders. You'll have get part of it here in a second. But he says, I've seen in my own life and witnessed in the lives of other leaders, that spiritual pride leads you, leaves you exposed to spiritual attack. No leader is safe thinking he's impervious to attack. A spiritually healthy leadership community is always watchful and alert to the spiritual dangers of life in a fallen world and life as a church or ministry leader. Then Tripp writes this, you'll see it up above. Perhaps there's no better defense against spiritual attack than humility. That is a sense of constant need for protective and empowering grace that then motivates us to watch for danger and cry out for God's help and the loving help of fellow leaders, right? Oh, I need thee every hour. I need thee, Lord Jesus. So humble leadership at the beginning has an inherent mistrust of self and a supreme confidence in the faithfulness and goodness and grace of Jesus Christ. You see that? So this weird situation is not weird. It's what all of us would do. How could you? How dare you? Who would do what? Instead of stopping and saying, man, if there's anything true about communion, it's I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And if there's anything true about a spiritual catastrophe, is there but by the grace of God go I. God help us. God help us. Does that, that make sense? So that's the first reaction here when we see what's going on. What Jesus does then is he compares with his disciples the kingdoms of this world to the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. And he says, we live, in, we have a very different kingdom. We are not imitating the kingdoms 
of this world. So look at verse 25. It says, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles do what? Exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. That's not the way it is with you. Very poignant, very helpful with his disciples. And he draws, it says, leadership in the world is very different than leadership in the kingdom of God. And so what's the difference between the way the world has leadership and the way Christ and his kingdom has leadership? Worldly leadership is two things, according to Jesus. It's autocratic and it's arrogant. Both of those things. He says, the kings of this world exercise lordship over them. In other words, they say jump, you say how high. Kingdoms of this world come in and say, this is what you should be doing. This is how you're doing it. And they get people to bow and bend to their will. It's asserting, autocratic leadership asserts human authority. And again, I want to come back and say, what happens is something's going off the rails. This is what's going on in Sudan. This is what's going on in Russia, Ukraine. This is what went on in Nazi Germany. This is what goes on in any human heart where it's not checked. We step up when things are going wrong and we say, You're, I'm, if, if this thing is spinning out of control, I better get it under control. And we bring it under control thinking we've got the right way, right? We exercise our authority. And so dads, we do this all the time right? Your kids are spinning out of control, and you decide enough is enough, and suddenly you're exercising autocratic authority, not Christ-like authority. I'll let you paint that out the way, however it looks like. I'm speaking confessionally from experience, right? There are times where you think, okay, I've got to fix this thing. I've got to step up. I've got to do it, and you exercise a greater authority. This is where you step in and say, God, you're not showing up, so I'm going to show up. And I'm going to do this. It's what, Samuel, what Saul did in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Do you remember uh, in 1 Samuel, Saul uh, was told to wait for Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice. And Samuel doesn't show up on uh, Saul's timelines. And so Saul, in panic not thinking he would get the blessing of God, decides to take the reins on his own, and then Samuel shows up, and he says, what are you doing? And Saul's answer to them was, the people were drifting away. They were all about to go, and I had to keep the people. I had to get, I had, see, what's going on there? He had to save God. He had to step in in the place of God. My dear friends, that's what autocratic leadership does. It plays God with other people's lives rather than trusting and serving and looking to God. We all are in danger of that. We become God's Savior instead of waiting on him. That's inherently satanic. That's what Satan did. Tom Schreiner says we see in this passage clearly top-down leadership by which the greatness of a person is established by his position. Jesus does not follow the world's conceptions and paradigms. He subverts and overturns what people consider greatness to be. The greatest do not advertise their power and influence, but consider them to be like the youngest person, like those at the bottom of the social ladder. Worldly leaders are not only um, assuming power and asserting power, but they're arrogant. They assume moral superiority. They assume 
moral superiority. They call themselves, Jesus says, benefactors. This is what Caesar did. Caesar took rule and then he assumed that he was benefiting the people. You're so blessed by my leadership. Good thing I'm stepping up and doing this. They, they thought that here I am in a position of moral superiority. My dear friends, that's not in the kingdom of God where we step up and think I'm better than you. The truth is, apart from the grace of God, we're on the same playing field. We humble ourselves. Even Christ is willing to humble ourselves. Jesus, David Garland says, implies that those who receive the title benefactor bestow benefits on others to keep them subservient and to foster the myth that the elite are generous and therefore praiseworthy. And so you've got to be very careful. Uh, when we become harsh and cruel and saying, I'm doing it for your good, take a double check. Because it may be that you're just ex ex asserting your will and you're dealing with moral pride, and you're not trusting God. It's a good warning for all of us. There's a lot of application to this. Why am I so wanting everybody to believe that uh, this is good, this is, I'm doing it right, I'm more. You stop and realize, is it because I need to be acknowledged that way? Because if that was necessary for Jesus, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. Because they call them every other name under the book, under the sun, on the way there. So worldly leadership is arrogant. Worldly uh, leadership is autocratic. Kingdom leadership is humble servant leadership. Instead of arrogant, it's humble. So Jesus says, but not so with you. That's how they function, verse 26, but not so with you. It says, rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. This sound, should sound familiar to, me, to you because in Luke chapter 9, do you remember when Jesus took Peter, James, and John, went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they saw Jesus transfigured? And they saw this glorious vision. When they came back down the mountain, some of the disciples had been unable to cast out a demon out of a young child. And so they came down, and that was going on, and they were arguing amongst themselves. And Jesus goes, man, how long do I have to put up with you, you ye of little faith? He confronts them over that. And it's in that passage, right after that, it says, and the disciples began to argue about who was the greatest. And so Jesus took a little child takes a child who has no significance puts them in front of them and says unless you become like that child and then jesus in this passage of scripture says this but not so with you rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves for who is greater one who reclines at the table or one who serves it is is it not the one who reclines at the table but i am among you as one who serves and so in the kingdom of god you are embrace a childish position a position that does not have dignity does not have authority you take that servant role that lowly role and a lot of cultures if you're a child you don't have the elevated status you have in the well in the western world it, when when you're younger in other cultures you give respect to the older you you give deference to the older when i go down to honduras um, some of these countries most of the people are younger, <laughs> the population. When I go down there, I am called Don Kevin, even though my parents never gave me the name Don. <laughs> Don Kevin or Donya Marianne is a term of respect. 
in many cultures, there's different vocabulary that you use when addressing someone who's older if you're younger. Korean, you speak different, different verb forms and different word forms if you're talking about older people. When you eat in a meal, in a, at a Korean meal, many of us have done that. If you're eating at a Korean meal, who eats, who serves, who pours the drink, how you pour the drink is based on age, based on position in the culture. Jesus is saying, you as my disciples, take the lowest position. You, you come in in the position where you will give deference to others, you will serve others, you're sitting there looking, how do I bring honor to everyone else? Isn't that counter to the world? That's what leadership in the kingdom of God is like. You become like the youngest. You become like a servant. He says, but who's greater, the one who reclines at the table or who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But Jesus says, I am among you as one who Sirs, Jesus says, I'm your waiter. And I'll tell you what I'm serving. I'm serving up my life on the cross so that you might live. I'm giving everything to you. How is it that the one who is the greatest and the most glorious takes the lowest position and embraces that? Jesus embraces the position of a servant. Do you do that? Philip Ryken says, Jesus Christ is the greatest one of all. If you, don't, if you doubt this, just go up to heaven and talk to the angels who have been worshiping him without intermission since the beginning of time. And they'll tell you that they have not yet given Jesus one trillionth of the honor that he deserves. Yet Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. That's the great model of kingdom leadership right there that we assume the position of humility and we commit ourselves to a life of sacrificial service to others. Have you chosen the life of a servant? In your family, in your marriage, towards your parents, have you chosen a life of a servant? Where, where you live and where you work? Would people look around you and say, man, that person rolls up their sleeve and takes the lowliest place as a pattern for life? You and I need to here, Philippians chapter 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. How much of your life would have been edited well this week if you did zip out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? Do nothing to serve yourself and your interests. Do nothing to elevate your pride in your position. Do nothing but consider others and their interests as more important as, than your own. This is Paul writing. For even Jesus, who was equal with God, did not consider equality with God as something to hold on to, but he humbled himself and became obedient, even to the point of taking on our humanity and becoming obedient to the point of death. Death on a what? How low must I go, Jesus says? I will go that low. The call to Christian servanthood is a call to deep humility. So I, I just ask the question, what are you doing out of selfish ambition? What's driving your life out of empty conceit? 
Are you actively abandoning recognition? Are you avoiding exerting your own will? Are you willing to take the position not only as a servant, but a suffering servant? What if you get no recognition? What if you get injured? What if it hurts you? Are you willing to take up the cross and follow Christ? This is what we're called to. Now, I want to show you what it looks like ultimately. Because in this passage of Scripture, Jesus doesn't stop there. He tells us what servant look, leadership looks like in heaven. And it's absolutely staggering. Jesus talks to his disciples. And so it's not just you think, oh, we're going to be servant leaders because life is hard and we've got to suffer with one another, all that kind of stuff. My dear friends, this is the way your God is. And this is what eternity is going to look like. What does servant look like? Jesus says, I'm going to assign you kingdom responsibilities and blessings in heaven. So listen to what he says in verse 28 of Luke 22. You are those who stayed with me in my trials. I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I find this amazingly helpful. What is Jesus saying in this passage of scripture? Number one, Jesus acknowledges and approves of the disciples' imperfect efforts. I don't know what you would have said when they were doing this, but I wouldn't have said this. Jesus says to these disciples, you are those who have stayed with me through my trials. You look at Luke's gospel, right before this passage, one of you is going to betray me. Immediately after this passage, Peter, you are going to deny me three times. Yet in the middle of all of that, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, and you guys have hung in there with me through my trials. And we go, what? Now I'll tell you what humble leadership does. Because when we're proud and we're like the world, we're fault finders. We're always pointing out what's lacking in someone else's life. We're, we have a critical spirit. But Jesus has the capacity as a humble leader to look at imperfect disciples who are about to abandon him in profound ways when he needs them most, and he's able to say, when it was hard, you were with me. And, and he's not lying, friends. Jesus isn't lying. He's seeing their faithfulness even though they fail. And when we get to heaven, this is the good news. Jesus is not going to parade all your failures in heaven. There's not going to be a long litany of all the ways you let him down. In heaven, there will be glory and praise and honor shared with us. That's hard for us to imagine, but he will honor us. We will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, even though he was the good and faithful servant on our behalf. He will ascribe to us reward and blessing and acknowledgement for our feeble efforts. I don't know why and I don't know how, but that's the way our Savior is. And I just want to ask you this question. Do you point out people's faults more or do you recognize the grace of God in people's lives? We, we as the people of God need to hear more of the grace of God that's evident in our lives even though we're far from perfect, right? Amen. You need that. And if you don't see it, you're not seeing what he sees. Christ sees you. And he acknowledges our weakest efforts by faith. The bruised reed he does not break. The smoldering flax he does not snuff out. Praise God for that. So he affirms by the grace of God. And secondly, not only does he shares the deserved rewards of his sacrifice. He says, 
You are the ones who have stayed by me, so I assigned you as uh, my father's assigned to me a kingdom, so that you may eat and drink with me in, at my table in the kingdom. There's going to be this great celebratory feast one day, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we're going to be sitting there eating at the table, the head table, with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We're going to be there with him. Why? Because he said, this is for you. I did it for you. We are together. This is ours. Isn't that a good boss when you're working as a team? There's so many bosses out there. You slave as a team, and then all they do is tell you what you didn't do, and then they tell you what you have to do next. This king says, sit down and eat. He shares that with us for all eternity. We take the bread and cup as an anticipation of that great feast where Jesus will say, I have prepared a table before you. Sit down and eat. And that's a sign of humble leadership. Humble leadership shares the rewards, the blessings, the credit, the praise, all of that. I don't know why Jesus does it, but that's what he does. Do you do that? Man, in this world, if you did that in your business, everybody would want to work for you. If you you gave and recognized and acknowledged, even if it was minuscule and allowed people to share, that's what heaven is. And thirdly, lastly, Jesus entrusts us with authority in heaven, not autocratic authority, but servant authority. He says, and you will, to his disciples, rule the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 tribes of Israel is a phrase that means all the people of God. Here are these disciples who, who are arguing over who's greatest, who are going to be assigned authority in heaven. And you're like, well, I don't want to work in them. Good news, they'll be perfect then. Good news, they'll be sanctified. But this is what Jesus does. I give you authority and you can rule and reign forever in glory friends humble service is not just the way of earth humble leadership is not just the way of the church humble leadership is the way of christ and it's for eternity he has taken on our humanity and seated at the right hand god's given him the name above every name that the name of jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess and jesus will say what come eat Come rule and reign. Come share alongside me. That will be our destiny through faith in Jesus Christ. What a glorious Savior. We need to be like that. We need to ask the Lord to kill the pride, kill the competition, kill the arrogance. When we look at Judas, we've got to go, God, help us. When we take the cup, we say, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us our pride. Forgive us our, our, our bullying are pushing other people around, are insisting on our own will. Forgive us, Jesus. Conform us to your servant-like likeness. Isn't that what we want? Aren't you glad he's this way? It's totally different than the world around us. May God help us. Let's pray together as we prepare for communion. Heavenly Father, as we come to take the bread and drink the cup, We ask, Heavenly Father, that we might be humbled ourselves even today. So easy for us, dear God, when things seem to be going off the rails to assume we know what's best and that other people should appreciate us. And it's easy for us, dear God, to insist on our way and our will. But thank you, Jesus, that you submitted yourself to the will of the Father. And I thank you, dear Jesus, that you were not too proud, that you would die 
with false accusations against you for sinners who abandoned you. I thank you, Jesus, that you gave your life for me. I ask Jesus that you would kill my pride. I pray that you would take away my critical spirit. I ask, dear God, that you would save me from self and self-will. And I pray, God, by the power of the Spirit, that you would make Waterbrook a church of humble servants that shine with ever-increasing glory to the praise of our Savior, the Servant King. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.